Welcome to What Christians Should Know, how you can apply biblical principles to everyday life. Good day to all. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. Welcome to What Christians Should Know, Part 2, Who God Is. This lesson is the first and the most important because it lays the foundation for everything else to follow. It clarifies a lot of the confusion Christians have about Yahweh, the God of the Bible. After all, the central character in all of Christianity is always God, so to understand the Christian faith, one must first have a very refined understanding of who that character is. I invite everyone to visit wcsk.org, the official home of what Christians should know. There you will find free online Bible study, free ebooks, and be empowered to know what you believe and why you believe it. So the first place to start when talking about what Christians should know is God. After all, that's where the Bible starts. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. What Christians should know is that in order to live an obedient life and enter into a relationship with God, you have to have a comprehensive understanding of who God is. So, all Christians should be able to answer the question, who is my God? As with any other relationship, the closer two people become, the more each gets to know about the other. It is important to realize, however, that God can be known, but this feat is not accomplished strictly by human means, but is part of the revelation of God to us. So a person sitting alone in a room in deep thought won't be able to know God. God cannot be known through human wisdom alone. To get to know God, a person first needs the desire to know, and then comes engagement with the Holy Scriptures or the Bible, where true knowledge of God resides. What that means practically is that any attempt to understand God without referencing the Scriptures will lead to a suppression of the truth, false thinking, and darkened hearts. Hence, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Romans 1, 19 says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. With this idea also comes a recognition that we, as temporary human beings, cannot ever fully grasp God because He is greater than us and eternal. This makes sense because we are the creation, so of course there will be concepts and attributes about God that are beyond comprehension. This is why in Isaiah 55, 9, God speaks through the prophet and says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In the book of Psalms, it says that God's greatness is unsearchable, his understanding is infinite, and God's knowledge is too wonderful, it is too high, it is something that cannot be attained by a human being. In 1 Corinthians 2, 11-12, the Apostle Paul says, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. 
In spite of this, there is a tremendous wealth of information about who God is in the Bible. The Bible teaches us that God is love, light, spirit, just, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, wise, timeless, merciful, holy, blameless, self-existent, righteous, infinite, personal, as in Jesus, invisible, knowledgeable, truthful, faithful, good, peaceful, slow to anger and patient, the creator, graceful, jealous, wrathful, willful, blessed, beautiful, sovereign, and unchangeable. God's whole being is inclusive of all of these attributes, and he is simultaneously and equally all of these things. In particular, God's omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience all reveal that he exists in a different way than we exist, and that very existence surpasses what we can deduce from the rules of the natural world. What that means is simple. Qualitatively speaking, God is very different than us. The characteristic of unchangeability means that God's character promises being and purposes were, are, and always will be the same. This is the reason why and how we can trust in him always. He will be good, truthful, perfect, and just eternally. He may, however, change his response based on particular circumstances. For example, in the beginning of the book of Jonah, God intended to destroy the evil city of Nineveh because of the extreme wickedness of its people, and he sent Jonah to tell the people that judgment was coming. In response to Jonah's prophecy in Jonah chapter 3, the Bible says the people of Nineveh believed God, fasted, and turned from their evil ways. In response, Jonah 3.10 says that God relented and subsequently did not harm the city or the people. So God did not change in being both just and merciful, but he did change what he intended to do based on the situation and also consistent with his unchanging character. Other examples of God changing his mind include the successful intervention of Moses on behalf of Israel's sin in Exodus 32, 7-14 and adding 15 years to the life of Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, verses 1-6. Many of God's attributes are not shared with human beings, for example, his omnipresence or being everywhere at the same time. But other attributes are shared with humankind in a limited way simply because we are finite creations, whereas God is infinite. These shared characteristics include truthfulness, love, holiness, being just, and being merciful. So while at best I may be somewhat merciful some of the time, God is perfectly merciful all of the time. What Christians should know is that one of the exclusive truth claims of Christianity is that God is both an unlimited deity and a personal deity. What that means is that God is not only something greater than which we can think in our minds, but he is also intimate with reality, most perfectly embodied in the incarnation of God as a person in Jesus Christ. Other religions may construct a God who is unlimited but not personal, and others may construct a God who is personal but not boundless. 
God also is independent of humanity and doesn't need us for anything. Yet in view of all of God's marvelous attributes, people are often confused because there are some things God cannot do. For example, God cannot lie. He cannot go back on his covenantal promises. He can't deny himself. He can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. When I say that God doesn't need us, it's not meant to depress anyone. What that does mean then is that because he lacks nothing, the creation of our world and humankind came out of God's abundance. He didn't make us to fill a void, and after we have all passed away, God will still be. And he had meaning and purpose in creating us, so our existence was not a roll of the dice or a mishap one day in a heavenly lab. God delights in his creation, created us for his glory, and did so in a totally free and voluntary act, which had been predestined according to his purposes. God is a spirit and therefore sexless and without human form. So when I repeatedly refer to God as he, that doesn't mean God is a male, although Jesus was a man. Rather, it's a human word and concept used to denote a relationship. In fact, a myriad of anthropomorphic or ways of describing God in human terms are used throughout the Bible to describe God so as to use our own language to illustrate a point. God is referred to as a shepherd, father, and a physician, while also seeing, walking, remembering, and wiping away tears. Examples of different emotional states include grief, love, wrath, and pity. The Bible also refers to God's face and his finger and ears. In a similar light, God is compared to a tower, a lion, a rock, and the sun. With all of these things in mind, the way in which God chose to reveal himself to us is by the name Father. This is why when asked about how to pray, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9-13 to address God as our Father who is in heaven. This brings us to our first essential doctrine, which forms one of five essential core doctrines of the Christian faith. So the first essential doctrine is this. What Christians should know is that the principle of the Holy Trinity is one of the most important principles of the Christian faith and is one of the exclusive truth claims of Christianity. What Christians should know is that there is one God, yet God is three distinct persons, each of whom is fully God. The three persons are the Father, the Son, or Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind the word Trinity is never ever mentioned in the Bible. The word was applied by humanity in order to describe a principle pervasive in the scriptures that is located in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This does not mean that God is a person in the same way that I have four limbs, get up, drink tea, and then drive to work. Rather, it means that God is personal and is therefore not a remote, impersonal power. Also, because each member of the Trinity is fully and equally God, no one is better than the other. 
A more academic and formal definition is that God is an infinite spirit that is one with an undivided essence. The Father, Son, and Spirit are of all the same essence, but God has distinct instances of a given essence. Each person is relationally distinct, but they have a type of unity that penetrates one another which in academic circles is referred to as a perichoresis or type of divine dance with interlocking partners. So let's make this plain. The Trinity is one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Also, Deuteronomy 4, 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. For 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God. God. So the skeptic or the curious mind may now ask, but aren't there other gods? Jesus says in John 17:3, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Deuteronomy 32.17 says, They sacrifice to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. For thousands of years, people have been worshiping and sacrificing to false gods that are not supreme that are not the one true God, and that are not the Trinitarian God of the Bible. They are imposters and have lured many into false religions. Certainly there is a spiritual realm, and within that spiritual realm are entities that are otherworldly, and relatively speaking may seem like quote-unquote gods. But the God of the Bible is the only absolute God besides whom there is none other. Of course, there is a spiritual realm, and within that realm are entities that are otherworldly, and the worship of such entities results in paganism and witchcraft, just to name two examples. I say this because one must understand that believing and serving the one true God also means recognizing that there are a multitude of spiritual traps one can fall into or be duped into believing. So what this means in practice is that Jesus is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Yet all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are God. So the Father is God. John 6.27 says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For in him the Father, God, has set his seal. 
1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Jesus is God. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word becoming flesh was Jesus, so in the beginning with the Father was Jesus, or the Word, who was also God. In John 8:58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Referring to himself as God or I am is exactly the same way the Father referred to himself as God in Exodus 3.14 when God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1-3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. The text says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. The Holy Spirit is God. 2 Corinthians three seventeen to 18 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Acts 5, 3-4 reads, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Notably, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal it. For example, in Ephesians 4.30 it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit can also be resisted. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did, as it says in Acts 7.51. Hebrews 10.29 says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit is not only the Spirit of truth, but also the teacher of that truth to believers and dwells within those believers. In other words, true awareness, knowledge, and understanding of God 
comes directly from God and thus God will never reveal non-truth about himself to anyone. By implication then, anyone who proclaims something as truth that is contradictory to the word of God in the scriptures is not revealing truth at all, but false doctrine. The Holy Spirit being God with full and complete understanding of the truth is incapable of lying and teaching false doctrine. So a person who believes that they can live a Christian life filled with what the Bible calls sin does not derive that belief from God. Truth comes directly from God by the Holy Spirit and is therefore never derived from us or what we feel on the inside, but is eternal, objective, changeless, and timeless. We conform to the truth. The truth never ever conforms to us. And as mentioned previously, God is many things and all those things fully and equally all the time. Therefore, the mercy of God never invalidates his justice or the fact that he finds sin detestable. 1 John 4 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Understanding the Trinity of God, then, means understanding love. Within the Trinity, there is relationship, friendship, harmony, unity, and happiness. The essence of the Trinity is love. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In John 14.31, Jesus says, I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Hence, you and I and everyone, all made in the image of God, were made from love, with love, to love, and to be loved. But in order to properly understand and execute this, we need God, which is where our conception of love started. A world with God leads to harmony and unity. A world without God leads to disunity, strife, marital discord, failed relationships, abuse, neglect, oppression, racism, sexism, and societal discord. This is exactly why in Matthew 22 verses 35 to 40, Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love God and love your neighbor, because in a world without God, committed neighborliness is sacrificed on the altar of self-interested individualism. An atheist may say, how can there be a loving God if there is so much evil in the world? And one of my responses is that the exact God whom they reject and mock is exactly the person to solve all of these human dilemmas. Evil isn't the absence of God, but rather it's the turning away from him. And in the ultimate judgment, God gives everyone who rejects him exactly what they wanted all along, an abominable, vile, and empty existence without a loving father. What Christians should know is that the distinction of God's persons is important because there is an imminent and an economic trinity. The imminent trinity refers to how God relates to himself. The economic trinity refers to how God works in history in order to accomplish various tasks. So all the persons of the Trinity are distinct as a function of their relation to each other and the world. It follows then that the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same and they are made distinct by their relations. 
So to himself, God is all the same and imminently works in perfect harmony and unison. But in regard to the salvation of humanity, for example, each person of the Trinity plays a different role to accomplish a task. For example, 1 Peter 1.2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. In other words, God the Father knew beforehand whom he would save. God the Son came into this world in order to live, die, and be resurrected. And God the Spirit works in and through us to empower us in the Christian path so that we can be reconciled back to the Father through Christ. Our whole salvation is Trinitarian, a concept beautifully articulated in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Here's another way of looking at it. God the Father speaks a word in heaven. Jesus the Son is the word of God that became flesh and lived with us for a few decades on earth. After his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven after paying the ultimate price for sin, and so he created a new spiritual bridge between the Father and us. And this is why Jesus is so critically important, because without the divine sacrifice, salvation would be impossible. Soon after Jesus went up to heaven, the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, subsequently empowering us to manifest the fruits of an obedient life so that we may one day cross the bridge of Jesus back to the Father. Here are some examples of the economic trinity. God the Father spoke the universe into existence in Genesis 1, but in John 1.3 it says the Father acted through Jesus. The text says all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. The Father is the one who sent Jesus into the world and planned for the redemption of humankind. It is the foreknowledge of the Father that allows only Him to predestine those who will believe and follow Christ. The Father does not advocate for us before Himself. Only Jesus does. This is why in 1 John 2.1 it says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christ is the perfect divine mediator. So, Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notably, only Jesus, incarnated as man, was rejected by many, suffered and died on a cross, and then was resurrected three days later. Neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit died on a cross. The Holy Spirit is called a helper, a distinction apart from the Father and Jesus. John 14.26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The word for helper in Greek is parakletos, a term meaning one who pleads a case before a judge, a comforter, advocate, intercessor, or legal assistant. Romans 8.27 says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is also described as distributing gifts 
gifting speech, and interceding. It is a unique attribute of the Spirit that regenerates us to give us new invigorated spiritual lives and to empower us. A fancy way of describing the Trinitarian dynamic is ontological equality but economic subordination. To put it more simply, all three persons of the Godhead are of the same stuff but willingly submit in order to do a job. To be clear, no member of the Trinity is subordinate, inferior, or non-equal to the other two, but there is a deference or voluntary subordination of will without ontological subordination. Without question, there is explicit reference to Trinitarianism in the New Testament, and there are also many implications of it in the Old. For example, in Genesis 1.1 it says, In the beginning God. Here, the word God, or Elohim in Hebrew, is plural, yet words conjoined to Elohim in Hebrew grammar are singular so that God is and not God are. There is a form of speech in Hebrew grammar called plural of majesty, where referring to a single person in the plural denotes respect, but this method is not used in any other place in the Old Testament. Genesis 1.1 goes on to say, And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. In verse 2, God famously says, Let there be light. And light is often used in reference to Jesus, the Son, when he refers to himself as in, I am the light of the world, and while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So within the first few sentences of the Bible, we are introduced to Trinitarianism at work before the world as we know it was born. Furthermore, Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Genesis 3.22 says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. The psalmist refers to more than one person as God. In Psalm 110.1, where David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The first passage is referred to in Hebrews 1.8, but is specifically applied to Christ. The implication of the second passage is that, A. David is calling two distinct persons Lord, and B. The Lord could only make another God sit at his right hand. Even more, Psalm 110 verse 1 is read by Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 45, where Jesus was debating with the Pharisees. Jesus then says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. The wonderful connection made by Jesus in the New Testament is that in the Old Testament, David was only able to see the two lords while empowered by the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned in Isaiah 48.16, where the speaker says, And now the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. The speaker, presumably the Son or Jesus, mentions being sent as well as the Spirit. In Luke 4, Jesus reads a scroll that has Isaiah 61 written on it, and then in Luke 4, verse 21, Jesus says, 
Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The clearest representation of all three persons of the Trinity at once occurs at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3:16-17 says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here, simultaneously, all three members of the Trinity perform a different function. The Father speaks, the Son is baptized, and the Spirit descends to anoint Jesus for ministry. A proper understanding of the Trinity changes the very way a Christian thinks about life itself because the Trinity is a relational dynamic and we, as Christians, are in a relationship with God. The Trinitarian God of the Bible is the one already in a relationship with himself before the creation of the world. As a result, love, which is other-dependent, existed before God exerted his power. This distinguishes God as one already in love and fellowship with another before creation from other impersonal Unitarian gods who needed to create in order to enter into a relationship. And it is simply because God loved that he gave his son our world and our very lives. Love is always selfless, gives without reciprocal expectation, and acts for the benefit of another. The entire doctrine of salvation is based solely on the Trinity, without which we could not be saved, and through these relationships, we are reconciled back to God, that is, by the Holy Spirit working in us, through Jesus Christ, back to the Father in heaven. This reveals that the human experience is intended to be loving and communal. So, it is not good for individuals to be alone because our lives are meant to be community-oriented simply because that's who God is and we are all made in His image. Furthermore, all three persons of the Trinity are fully transparent, honest, good, and truthful, and this provides a blueprint of how we should live. God is one all the time, without variance and without change, which means his character never changes based on circumstances. He pours out his love and shares his eternal attributes freely and openly, without bounds. There is giving without ceasing and also humility, because Jesus, being fully God, voluntarily subjugated himself for our sake. He redefined power then, not by using it against us, but by emptying himself for us. Hence, it is not my will that will be done, but God's will, and when you lose your life is when you really find it. Truly Jesus, being fully God, submitted to the Father out of love. As a result, there is love without argument, lying, poor communication, disrespect, criticism, or covetousness. In the context of relationship, Jesus knew the Father was equal, but he submitted and obeyed. This reorganizes any misconceptions or pollution from American ideology about how a Christian ought to act in marriages, institutions, friendships, churches, and communities, and honoring one's mother and father. Any ideology that says otherwise, 
that uses power for the sake of self as in I am right. I will not respect those in authority because I am better or they're beneath me is inconsistent with the Trinity and consistent with the world. This is especially important when contemplating how people of faith approach non-believers and people outside the church. What Christians should know is that there have been many heresies regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Even small deviations put you on a path where you end up way off course. There are three main false doctrines. One, that God is not one but many. This is basically polytheism. Another fallacy is tritheism, which says that God is three and not one. The second heresy says that God is not three persons and that he's one actor with three different masks. Modalism, for example, says that God remains the same person but changes his face mask depending upon what scene of the play is happening on stage. The obvious problem with this ideology can be found in passages like Matthew 3 that show God simultaneously being Father, Spirit, and Son at the same time. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, Jesus prays to the Father in heaven, making the modalism hypothesis impossible. The third heresy claims that any member of the Trinity is not equally God. Arianism was a heretical doctrine that was resolved at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Arius, a bishop in the Alexandrian church, said that Jesus was not God and was at some point in history created by God the Father. Adoptionism, or the idea that God adopted Jesus at some point, thereby making a fully human male his son, is also heretical. What Christians should know is that God has multiple names and each pertains to a specific aspect of his deity. Yahweh is the proper name for God and is what God chose as a label for himself in Exodus 3.14 when he said, I am who I am. This name emphasizes the covenantal relationship that God has with his people. Jehovah can also be used to express the same meaning or the existing one. Elohim is first used in Genesis 1.1 and this name emphasizes God as supreme over everything, including other false gods. Adonai means the Lord God or Lord of the whole earth. The name of God incarnate, Jesus, means the Savior of mankind. The English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means Messiah or anointed. So, when someone says Jesus Christ, they are literally saying the Savior of mankind, the Messiah. Compound names are also used to describe specific characteristics. For example, Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will provide as used in Genesis 22, verses 13 to 14. El Shaddai means God Almighty and emphasizes God's power. Names in our world are usually easily explicable. Typically, our parents gave them to us, often for specific reasons. There is, however, only one explanation for the name of God in the Hebrew Bible, and it comes from Exodus 3, 14 to 15. There it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Furthermore, God said to Moses, 
Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The Hebrew root of I am is Yahweh. What Christians should know and now realize is that the Trinitarian God of the Bible is a complex, thought-provoking phenomenon that is in no way simple or easily mastered. So many people in the world who dismiss Christianity as a refuge for the ignorant or a consolation to the intellectually challenged truly reveal that they have no idea of who God is, nor have they ever taken the time to understand sound doctrine. Getting a firm grasp on the Trinity requires earnest effort and discipline on part of the believer. So if you feel as if you haven't gotten it yet, do not be discouraged. That's the normal response. It took one of the greatest theologians in history, Augustine, more than a decade to complete his work on the Trinity. God bless. Thank you for listening to What Christian Should Know. For more valuable content, please visit us at chesadoffel.com. For general inquiries, email us at info at wcsk.org.